in 1990, only 3% of people in the United States of America said that they had no close friends. 3%, that's pretty good. In 2021, at the height of the pandemic, that number rose to 12%. 12% of the population said that they had no close friends. In 1990, 51% of people reported having five or less close friends. Five or less in 1990. That seems shockingly high to me. And yet, in 2021, that number jumped to 73% of people reporting that they had five or less close friends. Another study, Robert Putnam reports that 40%, this is more recent, 40% of American adults have zero to one confidant. Just process that for a minute. Zero to one confidant. 40% of American adults, almost half of our population, reports that they have zero to one confidant. Confidant. Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murphy said these words when he was exiting office and writing books and things and sharing kind of what he had learned. Here's what he said. During my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, but loneliness. Loneliness. A heart that aches for community. Right? And we say all the time that you are created for community. You're created for good works in Christ Jesus. And the body is one. Right? Of all the things Jesus could have prayed for in John 17, he prayed that his body, you and me, and every other church in Tampa, and this nation and this world, would be one. And so... Our relationships are super important. And yet, as the slide shows, we all bring baggage to that table, do we not? That'd be a good place to say, yep. <laughs> we all do, right? Like, there's not a soul on planet Earth that hasn't been shaped by the experiences that they have had through life with other people. We all bring baggage, but I want to talk about three of them over the next three weeks. So we're going to do that, and then we're going to spend four weeks talking about regeneration as we get ready to kick off regen and why that is so central to our faith. And then for the fall, we're going to jump into the book of James and go through the whole book of James. So I'm super excited about where we're headed. But I think that these are critically important conversations for us to have. And the takeaway from those reports, in my opinion, is that in a society that, is all, that was, in 1990, already struggling to get along, we've made it even worse and we could point to a few events over the past few years that have made it worse, could we not? I'm sure you have a handful that come to mind that just totally took over our airwaves. 
But here's the reality. When you assess America, America has been an experiment in radical expressive individualism. That is the 50 cent word of saying we are really, really selfish. And here's, here's the thing. When, when an entire culture is built to where your meaning and purpose in life begins and ends with you, what is supposed to bring you freedom actually ends up bringing you slavery because you were not made for that. And so it's super important for us to think about this. And so we're in this new series that I've cleverly called Relation Slips. And I want to talk about three of them. And the first one today is selfishness. Because in reality, the greatest baggage that you and I bring to a relationship, and I tested this out yesterday in my marriage. Did I not? Sure did. She's like, I'm not saying nothing. It's amazing when you preach a sermon on something, how awful you are at that, like the day before. So I had to get up here and confess my sins one to another, and then you can fulfill the law of Christ and bear my burden. Thank you for doing that. (laughs) Happy to do that for you after the service. I joke, but I'm not joking, right? And so when you think about that, like there's, there's not a single relationship you have. And, and I'm not just talking about marriage either. I'm talking about friendship. I'm talking about when you listen to somebody talk. I'm talking about your coworkers. I'm talking about your boyfriends and girlfriends. I'm talking about your marriages. I'm talking about the relationship you have with your kids. Like if I could zero in on the thing that I think is the most difficult part of the brokenness of this world in my own life, it really boils down to I am really selfish. And I think we wouldn't have to do a lot of digging for you to agree with me. And so, in terrific contrast to those reports... Let me, let me paint a picture of what the Bible says our relationships can look like. Okay? And so, let, let me give you a few verses here. Crazy contrast to the reports that those have offered and the culture that we live in that's all about individualism. The autonomous self. Here's what scripture says. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do... There it is again. Nothing... How is that even possible? Do nothing out of what? Selfish ambition. Or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Like if we just stopped, and maybe I should. I'm not going to. And just prayed through that. Like how would your life differ if the Holy Spirit of God would just press that into your personhood. My life would be crazy different. And I just invite you to accept that reality. That every now and then we need a heart check, we need a recalibration of 
Who am I valuing in my life? And as I proved yesterday, most of the time that's me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 24. No one, nothing out of self-sufficiency, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Yikes. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 5. Love is patient. You know this verse. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. There's that selfishness word again. It is not easily angered and it keeps no record of wrongs. Nothing to speak of here of any kind of expressive individualism. Nothing to speak here of your autonomous self and what you believe or what you want to be true. Doesn't talk about any of that. Rather, it offers a kind of self-emptying that leads to all human flourishing. Right? Never seek your own good, but rather the good of others. Can I just say it this way? Most of us, we want that. Like if I was to poll the audience, like I think all of us are like, yeah, like that would lead to a better city, nation, world, right? Like how many problems would be solved if we would take that ethic that Jesus has offered us? Solve a ton. And yet, we don't have that. We want it, but we don't have it because even in the smallest of ways on a day-to-day basis, like it's, it is extremely difficult to get that into me because of the world we live in. And, and we know that in the entire storyline of the Bible that this has been true. Like what did Satan go after in the garden with Adam and Eve? You can be like God. That was the lie. Selfishness. Eve, Adam, what what do you want with your life? Still happening. Why is that? One more verse. James chapter 3 verse 16 says this. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder in every evil practice. So in short, this matters. The Bible thinks that this matters. That if we don't attack our our selfishness or invite the Holy Spirit to have that part of our life, our heart... You know, we read scriptures like guard your heart for out of it all the wellspring of life flows. I don't know about you, but it often thinks like I need to guard my heart from people. I don't think that's what that means. It might mean that in your life, depending on what's going on. But it might mean from your own selfishness. It might mean from the things we're talking about here. Envy and selfish ambition. So let's unpack that just a little bit. What is expressive individualism? It's an experiment hoping to liberate people, right? On the surface, it sounds good for me not to care about what you believe for your life. 
or what I believe for my life, but that we should all just get along. The problem is we can't. And we have seen that for century upon century upon century upon century. I love what C.S. Lewis says, that we have some kind of chronological snobbery where we think that just because we've progressed technologically, we are somehow better at treating each other in love. We're not. We're awful. Can we just all admit that when you look around the world, we're awful at that. We're not even that good at it in the church. The divorce rate in the church is the same as it is outside of the church. We're we're just not. Why? Because in actuality, that kind of individualism, that autonomous self kind of thinking is not liberating people. It's actually crushing people. And it's alienating people from each other and blocking meaningful community inside the church and outside the church. This is not us pointing fingers at the world. We have in large quantities, swallowed that thinking into our own church. And so as a result, we find ourselves in a culture of what? What James said, a community full of disorder and every evil practice. But it is not just a them problem, it's an us problem. By the way, welcome to church. I'm glad you're here. (laughs) You're like, wow, this is like really negative. But not all is lost, right? Not all is negative. I love the analogy that is all through Scripture. That there is light. That there is what the Old Testament says, a tender shoot springing up from the desert floor. A green in the midst of a desert. A valley of dry bones that Ezekiel was looking at. That God invited him to look at in a different way and breathe life into those. And so not all is lost because there's a beautiful invitation from Jesus into something entirely different. What he calls the kingdom of God. And walking through this is very important because without it, Christianity can just seem like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not supposed to do anything for myself. I'm supposed to love everybody, blah, blah, blah. I get it, but I I can't live that. That's, That's not actually possible. I love all the mushy stuff, and it'd be great if all that was true, but it's just not real. There's evil in the world. And yet, Jesus gives us this invitation, because when you set things in their proper context, and you look at the long arc of the Bible, and then apply it honestly to our time, we see some of the genius of Jesus. And so the story that I want to share with you today, and the invitation just briefly come from a question that a religious leader asked Jesus. Really important question that he asked Jesus. And I think a lot of times when we read this particular story, uh, that's going to be familiar to you if you've been spent any time in church at all. I think we're tempted to be like, oh, those stupid religious leaders, those Pharisees, what a bunch of idiots. Like, we kind of get that. We kind of think that way. But in reality, in this setting, they were actually asking a great question because here's the deal. If you were a religious leader in that time and you were leading the people of God to follow him in that moment, pre-Jesus death and resurrection, there was a ton of laws that they were keeping track of. Thousands of things that needed to be done. Now, not all of them at the time were still what Jesus said. There were some additions, no doubt. But we do the same thing, don't we? The things that Jesus actually requires of us and then the things that we expect of other people are different. And so 
in this moment, I think they're asking a really good and pertinent question because they're trying to organize things here. Like out of all these thousands of things, Jesus, what's most important? Like, like what is step one in growth track, Jesus? <laughs> here's what he, here's the story. I want to read from Matthew chapter 22, but then I want to read a few details from Mark that Mark adds to the story because like every good story that has more people there, eyewitness account, they remember extra things. And so we want to get the full picture here of what was going on. And so look at this in Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 and following the scripture says this, but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together and one of them, a lawyer, it's always the lawyers asked him a question to test him. Any lawyers in the house? Sorry. We love you. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? What is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang or depend all the law and prophets. So every other thing is downstream from loving God and loving other people. And then Mark adds this to the end of the story in Mark chapter 12, verse 32 to 34. That after Jesus said that, here, here's the response that Mark records for us. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love oneself, one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was an important admission from the religious leaders of that time. That was, a, that was a good confession. Verse 34, And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus says to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Don't you love the Bible? It's just really real, right? Like, that was it. No more questions after that. And so... Here we are again. What does Jesus say the most important thing is? Your relationship to God and other people. Like at some level, Christianity, the faith that we believe, finds its feet on the ground in that place. There's tons of theology, there's tons of doctrine, and it all is very, very important and shapes the way we think. But in just a little bit, we're going to read the rest of 1 Corinthians 13 because it reminds us that we can have all those things right and still be wrong. And so we're in this series to talk about these things that are getting in the way. And here's the deal. Envy and selfish ambition are two pillars undergirding our cultural framework. And if we don't talk about it, if we don't put a spotlight on it in our own lives. We're just supporting what is destroying culture. So it's important. 
So when it comes to our friendships, our marriages, raising our kids, having any kind of relationship, we have to recognize the influences being pressed on us and how we find them in our life. So Jesus invites us to this different lifestyle, right? The kingdom of God is marked by love, not selfishness. Love for God who first loved us, then love for our neighbor. And Jesus says the rest of our faith depends on that, rests on that. So here's the deal. He says heart, soul, mind, right? Why does he say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? Why those three things? Because that is the complete picture of love. That is what we would refer to as shalom. Human flourishing is wrapped up in that. If my heart, my soul, and my mind are at peace, I am flourishing. That, that is human flourishing. And so here's where this comes full circle for this question coming from a Jewish leader who would have been thinking as Jesus answered about Deuteronomy chapter 6 and what was called the Shema, right? And so here's where Jesus is bridging the gap between what they have always believed and where Jesus is taking them. So critically important. Here's what Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 4 through 6 says. We're connecting old and new covenants here. Why are these completing each other? Why is shalom coming through Jesus? Here's what they would have been thinking about and why he affirmed what Jesus said. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, here we go, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your what? Your heart. Notice what's missing. What is Jesus completing as he marches to the cross and rises from the dead? The second greatest commandment, isn't he? Jesus is connecting. He's taking their confession confession that they have been confessing for literally most of time. And he's saying to this religious leader, you, you are close to the kingdom of God because I know that you believe that you are supposed to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. I know that you're supposed to. You, you believe that. But let me show you what the outworking of loving God with all your heart, with all your mind, all your soul looks like. Let me show you what that looks like. It looks like love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's why Jesus, when he's in the garden and he's just been praying and sweating blood and the soldiers come and Peter goes to defend him and chops off his ear, that in that moment, Jesus can go, whoa, whoa, we're that, that ain't it. And he puts the guy's ear back on. And he allows them to march him away and he goes through trial and he's beaten and mocked and scorned and hung on a tree for you and for me. It's because he was going to show us what it looked like for that God who was supposed to be loved with all of our heart, with all of our soul and all of our mind was going to go first. We say great leaders go first. That's what this looks like. God himself was going to step into time to go 
first. He was going to bridge that gap. He was going to show what it looks like for heaven to meet earth. It looks like loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and as a result of falling in love with Jesus, being able to love your neighbor as yourself. It isn't just a private faith. That's a portion of it. But it is unmistakably communal. You and I need each other. We need relationships in our life. And so it's critical, Jesus says, that that be the outworking of our faith. And so what are the things that get in the way of me seeing God and therefore me not being able to love my neighbor as myself? I want to make this really usable for you because it matters. We are deeply selfish. And being deeply selfish in our relationships gets in the way of us loving God how we ought. And not loving God how we ought means that He's not transforming our inner life as He ought. And therefore we are not Treating others as we ought. And so, it matters. Let's make it really usable though. It makes a ton of sense that they came to a leading rabbi of the day who was doing incredible things. That Jesus was the right person to come and ask. And trying to categorize this as what, what is important here. Jesus brings us back to relationships. And I think it's interesting. And you can write these four things down because I think that this is... This is so interesting to me that psychology today is affirming what Jesus has already affirmed for a long, long time. It's not surprising to me at all. But in interest of time, I want to just give you four essential life practices that contribute to human flourishing. Biblical language. The world would say this is what makes you happy. Okay, And there's this collision of heaven meets earth here. Because what psychologists are saying, Jesus has been saying, right? Like these are all in there. And so I want you to write them down and and think about them and, and maybe pray through them in your life. Number one, the number one thing to human flourishing. We're back where we started. How can you be happy? Number one, a few close friends. Psychologists are saying that you won't be happy in life if you don't have a few close friends. And so even our secular world recognizes that if I don't have people in my life, I'm going to struggle to find happiness. I'm going to struggle to be at peace. The second one, a nuclear family, as politically unpopular as that is. A good old-fashioned nuclear family. And not just like mom, dad, brothers, sisters, but like aunts and uncles and grandparents and all the things. Those are major contributors to human flourishing. And there are studies upon studies upon studies about like what fatherhood does in the life of a child. And when we could just go on. Very important. Number three, for all you type A's in the world, it's not me. Number three, meaningful work. 
has nothing to do with pay, has nothing to do with any of that, but simply whether you believe that what you're doing on a daily basis is meaningful, that you're contributing to society, that you're contributing to the world, meaningful work. Number four, a theology or philosophy that makes sense of life, yes, but also death and suffering. That without a proper framework for why things are the way they are, which is why I shared everything up to this point, it's tough for you and I to look at the world and find peace. Without the full arc of the Bible, without the full storyline of what Jesus is doing in the world, it is very difficult to look at the world we live in and find those cracks where the light is breaking through. And I can tell you one thing, it ain't on the news. I mean, every now and then they'll tag in, what's good in Tampa Bay? You're like, great. You just spend an hour telling me what's bad in Tampa Bay. (laughs) It's hard. It's hard. If you're a newscaster, we love you. I get it. It's hard. But here's the deal. The studies I shared as we began simply affirm what Jesus pointed those religious leaders to. And this will not be on the screen, but I think you should write this down because it's the reality of what you and I need to pray through. The reality of what we need to invite the Holy Spirit into. Your own selfishness, my own selfishness, is one of the, if not the, heaviest bag we bring to our relationships. That is my goal for you to walk out of here with. Knowing that your own selfishness, not your spouses, not your boyfriend or girlfriends, not your friends, and this is so hard because we're like, yeah, but, but if I go first, if I start laying down my life like Jesus called me to, they're not going to. They're going to abuse that. They're just going to accept that I have laid my life down and they're just going to trample on me. And I would say, when Jesus stood and looked at Jerusalem and began to weep, that is exactly what he knew was going to happen. That they were going to turn their shouts of Hosanna into shouts of crucify him. And that by him going first, he was going to show us that it's still worth it. Because what does the Bible say? It would be a shame for us to gain the whole world and lose our soul. Jesus invites you to a different way of life, and it is wildly countercultural, counterintuitive. The way up is down, the way down is up, and you're going to have to get comfortable with that. We're selfish because we're sinners, and that is the truth. There aren't a lot of people telling you that in this day, but I'm going to keep telling you because I'm living it, and I know you are. And our culture of the autonomous self isn't helping us because it doesn't lead to freedom. Our society is hollowing out all four of those things that lead to flourishing. And you need to know that. 
You need to see that because Jesus invites you to something totally different. And if we don't deal with our baggage, we're not going to find it. Because we say look up to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind so that He can then look in with you and transform you just like Romans 12, 1 and 2 says. Do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? We, we, we have to do that because we cannot on our own. And if we cannot transform ourselves on our own, that's what the whole experiment of expressive individualism is. Let's transform my reality on my own. And its end is destruction. And so Jesus invites us to allow him in. So that we can then do that final piece of looking with Jesus, right? Love our neighbor as ourself. Then we begin to embody our faith. And we begin to actually live it out. It's not just the philosophy at that point. It's, it's heaven meeting earth through the kingdom of God, through the people of God. It's not, it's not about a giant serve day. It's not about doing, those are good. It's not about big events that we do. It's not, it's not about, it's about you laying down your life for the good of others. Because where, where envy and selfish ambition exist, there we find every kind of evil and disorder. So important that we do that because I'm happy to report that what the Bible says in Galatians 5, that we can walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lust of our flesh, is possible. And I'm still finding my way there. But the path there is through not conforming to the patterns of this world. But being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So important. So now I want to read, after all of that, 1 Corinthians 13 to you. Because it's a familiar passage, but without all of that context, it feels wildly unable to happen. But I just want you to know that the Holy Spirit is available to you and to me. And if we'll surrender to that daily, he'll meet us there. But it will require us laying down our selfishness. Because this scripture puts a spotlight on it. That's hard to ignore. So this is going to be up there. And I want you to just look at it with me. And, I'm all, and I'll be done. But I think this is so critical because we read this at weddings and we, we do this and, and yet like we want this, but we don't have it. And so we need a path toward it. We need a path toward it. Here's what it says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, and understand all the mysteries and knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I've got nothing. If I give away everything that I have, and I deliver up my body to be burned, like as a martyr, but have not love while I'm doing that, I've got nothing. Love, on the other hand, is patient and kind. 
Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Ouch. It is not irritable. Ouch. Or resentful. Ugh. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Don't you love that confession that it's not all just, woo, love. No, love endures all things. This is real. Love, in fact, never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, when Jesus comes back, the partial will pass away. And, and here's what love can do in your life. Here's why love is not just some you know, mushy-gushy thing. What is love doing in your life? What is laying down your life? laying down yourself just what's it doing in you here it is if you want something practical when i was a child i spoke like a child i thought like a child i reasoned like a child but when i became a man i gave up childish ways for we now see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now i know in part then i shall know fully even as i have been fully known and then here it is rubber meets the road So now faith, hope, and love remain. If all the other things are temporary, what is going to last? So now faith, hope, and love abide or remain. These three, but the greatest of these is what? Love. We love because he first loved us. Selfishness is the heaviest bag that you bring to your relationship with God. Just look at your prayer life. What do you pray for? What are you praying for? Is it selfish? There's an element of that that he invites us to, right? To cast all of your burdens on the Lord because he cares for you. But if that's all you're doing, you're missing out on a huge piece of your relationship with God. Can you imagine with your best friend, your one confidant? If you don't have one, we need to work on that. But imagine if to your one confidant, all you ever did was tell them your problems. You never hung out. You never did anything fun. You never had a conversation about anything that had nothing to do with your problems. Like all you did, that's all you ever did. How long would that last? They'd stop being your confidant. So we understand this. And yet when it comes to God, he seems so other that we're unable to have a relationship. And I want to affirm that he is other. That there is a mystical side to the glory of God that I will not understand in this lifetime. And that's great news. Because the things I do understand in this world are broken. And so God's inviting you to a totally different thing. But there is this thing called repentance, right? Where we have to see our sin and we have to repent of that. And repentance is not a scary word. It just means to turn around and go a different direction. And I just, I stand before you as as the one who needs to go first. And so we're going to sing in just a minute. 
And I just want to invite you, whether you're sitting here or whether you're watching online or or you listen to this on a podcast later or watch it on YouTube later, I just want to invite you to invite God to do what David invited God to do. Search my heart. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That's the invitation. There's no song and dance. There's no 55 ways to get rid of your selfishness. It's surrender. It's surrender. Because we are selfish people. But the beauty of that is Jesus went and died on a cross so that heaven could meet earth and that you would have a bridge through to this different way of life. It is to get you to heaven someday. But that is not all the kingdom of God is about. You can have hope right now. Right now. But we need to go through that process. Search me, O Lord. Try me. See if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to have the band come up. And they're going to play and they're going to sing. And maybe that's what you need. Maybe you need to listen to these words about Jesus that we're going to sing And that's the balm that your heart needs. That's the medicine that your soul needs. But I also believe that maybe all of us, whether in the quietness of our heart, or maybe you need to grab myself or Jerome or somebody near you that you love and know, and you might need to pray. We've got to get past this idea that I just come and I check the box and that's church. That's not. Listen, this stuff is real. This stuff is real. This is your life. And it's short. Scripture says your life is like a vapor. It's here today and gone tomorrow. We got to keep shorter accounts with people. We got to burn less bridges. Love is the invitation. But love is not just some wishy-washy emotion. Love is hard. But man, oh man, we don't stand a chance if we won't deal with our selfishness. Amen? So let me pray for you. Then I just invite you to just whisper that to yourself, that prayer that David prayed. And I think if we'll all commit to that, and we'll all be better for it, the world will start to look a little bit more like the kingdom of God. We're close to the kingdom. Let's invite the Holy Spirit to start and finish that good work in us that he began. Amen.